Welcome to the Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whitehouse, and I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a little bit of time with me and my guests to learn a little something. I have a fantastic network of amazing people who make my life richer in so many ways. They make my personal life better, my business life better, my whole life better, and I want to share their stories and their teachings with you so that you can make your life better as well. We are all meant to do great things in our particular domains, and I hope that some of what you learned today may help you to live in your greatness. Welcome to the Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast. We're trying something a little bit different today. Uh, well, really just more of what we usually do. I'm very excited to have our guest on today. It is Daniel Greenwolf. I have known Daniel for many, many years, which is exciting to me because a lot of the guests I have on, I don't know them too well. I kind of meet them and get to know them through the podcast as you're getting to know them, which can be a lot of fun. Uh, but the great thing about someone that you know well is you get you really kind of get that conversation flowing. He has his own podcast uh, and... I was listening to his podcast uh, last week as I record this, and his format's a bit longer. And by it being longer, they can really delve into conversations, kind of let it flow. And the format I had been using was going for 15 to 25-minute conversations. And that meant that we kind of had to stay on topic, we had to stay on task and really stick to, you know, what do you know? What can you teach? What's your story? Okay, cool. Thanks for being on the show. You're out of here. And... What I found was listening to his podcast and where those conversations would go is more engaging, is more interesting. Now, the reason I was keeping it short is I've gotten feedback from some people who said, well, you know, if I see it's over an hour, then then I just, I, I don't listen. I'm, I don't have time to listen to that. And I realized that a lot of people don't listen. Billions of people do not listen to my podcast. But if you're listening, it's because you either want to hear more of me or you want to hear more of my guest. So I said, why not give you more of my guest and kind of let it let it go? So this interview is a bit longer. It actually exceeded an hour. I'm going to try to keep the interviews themselves under an hour, but this went to an hour and six minutes. Uh, but it was a great, it went to all kinds of different topics and interesting areas talking about, uh, of course, being an entertainer, the business of being a professional magician, running renaissance fairs, raising kids, raising kids in 2021, and uh, all the the all that goes into that, uh, and just went to so many interesting, fascinating areas that I think is really going to be worth your time. And of course, it's a podcast. You listen to it in 14 different segments. You know, your your podcast listening software holds your place for you. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Daniel is, of course, going to be one of our speakers at Conference 21, which is February 20th and 21st of 2021. Get it? The 20. The Conference 21 thing, got a whole 21 theme going on. Uh, originally, Conference 21 was $21 for 21 speakers on the 20th and 21st. But uh, it got, was so popular with so many great speakers, it very quickly uh, became 21 or more speakers and uh, now has about uh, 30, about 32. So go to conference21.com to see all the amazing speakers, to sign up and to be part of it. And it's really, it's going to be more than just a conference, it's going to be a community. Because with a conference... What happens is you got to rent the hotel, you got to fly in, you got to get everyone together. There's a lot of infrastructure, a lot of overhead, a lot that goes into bringing people together. And you can't just have a quick meet and greet later on because everyone has to fly in again. Well, in virtual space, in cyberspace, uh, you can get together anytime you want, really. So we're going to have regular networking events between the events, and Conference 21 is going to be a quarterly event, so every quarter we'll have one date to be announced for the May one, but every quarter, and then twice a month with the networking events to bring people together, so it's not just come see some speakers, blah, 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 buy their book, buy their course, or whatever, it really is the speakers anchor it, the speakers are what make you say, oh yeah, I want to see that speaker, I'm going to go, but then 
In between, there's networking events between every speaker or, or networking time, just like if you're at a real conference. You go out in the hallway, you chat with people. Oh, what'd you think about that? Which one are you going to next? It's, it's really trying to capture that in-person conference experience without capturing the in-person conference expense. $21 is usually what you spend for lunch at one of these in-person conferences. That is your total cost, 21 bucks. That's it for the conference and all the networking events to go with, uh, with it in that quarter. So very excited to bring that and super excited to have uh, Daniel on the on the show today as well as at the conference because he's a great speaker, tells great stories, and he's a professional storyteller. So going to be a lot of fun, and I know you're going to enjoy the interview I had with him. So without any further ado, let's get on to the interview I had with him. This is Daniel Greenwolf, and I'll give the full introduction because he does a whole lot of things in the interview itself. Hope you enjoy it. So I'm here today with Daniel Greenwolf. He's a Celtic magician, fair runner, podcaster, ginger, and uh, probably six, seven other things I forgot. How are you doing today, Daniel? I am doing fantabulously. Thank you for asking, good sir. And uh, excited to be here. Yes, excited to have you. Um, as we are talking before, you're uh, often I have people on the show who I you know, know through my network and have some passing connection with. Um, but I've known you for like 64 years or something. Way, way too long, perhaps, for all of our sakes. Way too yes. long. <laughs> yeah, I think it, yeah, it was many, many uh, presidential administrations ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the before times. Remember yes. before the apocalypse? It was amazing. Yeah, way, way, way back, way back in the back before. <laughs> um, but so, and, and of course, you're on here because you are one of our Conference 21 speakers. Yes, I am. Excited and, to see it. Yeah. Um, which uh, Conference 21, for those who are not paying attention, conference21.com, which is uh, February 20th and 21st. Uh, and so you are an entertainer and a business person uh, after a fashion. Yeah, I think I, I think what happened was is that I wanted to be an entertainer so badly that I decided that the only way to do that was to become a business person uh, in order to entertain people because it's really hard to get an agent. Like it's just really hard to get an agent. So you just <laughs> you end up booking your own stuff and then okay. you start doing it. And then two decades later, you realize you've just been booking your own stuff for so long that there's almost no point in trying to get an agent at a certain point because yeah you've got the you, you you're as good a business person as you are an entertainer at that point yeah well i god i hope not <laughs> <laughs> i hope i hope i'm a better entertainer than i'm a business person yeah you probably are yeah. uh so uh so we'll, we'll start by by talking a bit about who you are because um i believe it or not there are some people who don't know who daniel greenwolf is i don't know how that happens but um for well, I- the the people out there who don't know who Daniel Greenwolf is, who are you and what do you do? Well, I expect most people don't know who I am. Uh, on a given day, I'm not sure I know who I am, but I am uh, <clears throat> Daniel Greenwolf, which is uh, I've been a magician for over 20 years. Uh, I perform as the Celtic magician, which is basically a I do an Irish themed magic show where I talk about uh, ancient Celtic mythology and uh, Irish mythology all the way up to Irish American history. Uh, you know, during the Gortamore, the potato famine, I actually talk about that in my show when I do my big illusion show. And we do everything from, uh, I do everything from Renaissance fairs and festivals to private parties to big illusion stage shows all over the U S and, um, even now virtual shows. I've entered the virtual spaces recently. So that's the, the other thing that I do. And so, and so how'd you get started with all that? Um, um, so I got started with that uh, when I was 10 years old. 
I saw a magician on television named Jeff McBride. Uh, it was on a special called World's Greatest Magic 2 on NBC. They used to have these specials every year on Thanksgiving Eve, I believe. And uh, I just, I, everybody else was really good on the show. This same show had people like Penn and Teller closing the show. Amazing magicians were all throughout this. Uh, but Jeff McBride came out and he did something that I'd never seen before in magic. You know, my family and I, we watched David Copperfield specials and stuff like that. We were, we liked magic, you know, but when Jeff McBride came out, he was doing something with masks and cards. He was wearing this almost like a, a fantasy elf, like outfit, like he was out of Lord of the Rings or something. And, and, and I, you know, I, I've watched it since cause you can find all these specials on YouTube now, which is always nice. Uh, but you know, the response that he got from the audience for doing what was basically some sleight of hand stuff with masks and cards, it it got a louder response in my mind than any of the other acts on the special. And I was so enamored by what I was seeing by this by this character that I said, I want to do that. That's what I want to do for my life. And so shortly thereafter, uh, you know, my, my family brought me to the you know, International Brotherhood of Magicians and then the Inner Circle Bizarre Magic uh, through one of my mentors, Joe Lantieri, um, who I met with, uh, you know, Joe Cabral, who runs the Inner Circle Bizarre Magic. And uh, from like the time of 13 on, I realized there's a bunch of weird people out there that do magic in a very different way. So I was never going to be a hat and rabbit kind of a guy. It just wasn't in my DNA to do. Um, and so I just I didn't. And then uh, when I was, I think when I was 13 or so, my parents also took us to the New York Renaissance Fair up in Tuxedo Park, New York. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, a lot of people never realize that, you know, magicians could make a living doing restaurant work or make a living uh, just performing on cruise ships or just performing at Renaissance Fairs or do it just doing that. I went there. I fell in love with this space, this Renaissance fair space is this whole nother world. People, you walk in and people are dressed up, you know, uh, in, in Renaissance wear, fantasy garb. And it's this whole space that's meant to recreate a Renaissance village. And, you know, there's jugglers, there's singers, there's musicians, there's knife throwers, and there's a magician. And so from that point on, I said, oh, I can just go and do this. And be a professional magician. Like, it never occurred to me that you couldn't make money doing magic. Um, and then other mentors like Jim Sisti, who performed at restaurants and stuff later on. You know, I also knew that, like, all of these options were viable. And so that's how I started. And so by the time I was 14, I had booked my first Renaissance Fair, the Festival of the Lion in Grafton, Massachusetts. which was a little one-weekend fair that I begged to get into. And they basically said, you know, he, the Al Fairbrother is no longer with us, unfortunately, but Al Fairbrother, I, I told him, you know, I, I contacted all these Renaissance fairs and I said, Hey, I don't even want to get paid. I just want to perform so I can get the experience. And Al Fairbrother was the first guy to say, Oh, well, you know what? Come on down. I'll pay you a whole whopping 80 bucks for the weekend. And, uh, and I'll even give you a stage time. And I was excited because I, I was expecting to do what's called lane work where you just, you know, perform in the street of the Renaissance Fair. You just kind of, you know, perform for people as they walk by. So this guy gave me my first real break at Renaissance Fairs. And um, and I, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with it. And so that's but, how it all started. And I, I think what's great in that story is, is it starts with you didn't know what you couldn't do. 
You didn't know it wasn't possible. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, you, didn't, you didn't have anyone telling you, like, magician, you can't make a living as a magician, kid. Go get a real job. Yeah, it never occurred to me. And, and what's funny is that I got lucky. I really do feel like that's the one place where I really got lucky in that I came across when – I, when I entered the uh, – International International Brotherhood of Magicians. I almost couldn't speak there for a second. Uh, um, Rathcully Wabbit. Rathcully Wabbit. The International Brotherhood of Magicians. Um, there was the local group in, uh, it was called Ring 59. And they were in Ansonia, Connecticut at the time. Over at Old Raps Paradise Inn is what it used to be called. Many, many, many moons ago. And, and the people that were there, I had people like Jim Sisti who uh, wrote something called the magic menu. He was the pie, you know, like one of the main kind of collaborators on, on restaurant magic. And uh, he also, he's performed at Quasi amusement park for years and years. He still does uh, with, with his wife, Sandy, they, they perform together when there's not a pandemic going on. <laughs> um, and so like, he was one of my main influences, Jolene Thierry, who had, who had a career of like 30 years of, of doing magic and all these different forms, you know, uh, and then later on, you know, David Garrity, who is a, an illusionist, who is the performer at Six Flags, and 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 he had been the magician there for decades. And, you know, all of these people were pros. And so I never had this thing of like, well, magic's just a hobby. I always saw that they're hobbyists, but then I saw that there were people who did this and made this work for a living. Names you would never recognize. Maybe the people who saw them would know them, but they're not... They're not, they don't have TV specials. These are people that are even, you know, this is before Fool Us was a thing or before any of these TV shows were a thing. You know, these people had never been on television to any large extent, mm-hmm. but, but they were making a living doing this. And it showed me that there was a range of, of you know, super successful magicians and then workers, you know, and everybody's a worker, but like, when you get to that level where you're grinding out and then I've got people who, you know, uh, even people who maybe I didn't think were the best magicians. I, I looked at their stuff and I'm like, what, this is, I can't, this is terrible, you know, uh, but, but they were still working. Mm-hmm. So I realized that the other part of that is that there's something else at play there. This is not just, this is not just a, uh, a somebody who, you know, uh, it, the, the most skillful are the ones who, who make the most money. You know, the best magicians make the most money at this. No, no. I mean, at the top of the game, yeah. At the top of the game, you get people like Neil Copperfield and Penn and & Teller who are, and Mac King and Lance Burton, people who are the best in the game. And, and they happen to have good business acumen and a good team behind them, you know. But, but really, it came down to, you know, uh, if you want to make money at Magic, it was it, the business was was just as important as as having the skill yeah well and that's the point i made in uh, one of my videos a couple months ago is that there are some people who are really good at what they do and broke because they're not good at marketing what they do or packaging it and the same thing that that uh, there's magicians out there who are technically excellent and terrible to watch uh, oh and, yes, and, and to some degree, also you you've ruined me for other magicians um, <laughs> because I hadn't really seen a lot of magicians before I saw your show, and then I saw another magician sometime later, and I'm like, okay, cool, yeah, you did some sleight of hand, and and where's the story? What are you doing? Um, so you know, I, I'm used to a storytelling entertainment with some magic in it um, that's really engaging. But but the I think the bigger thing is is there some people out there who you know really good computer programmers who are making less money than really mediocre. I mean, you know, look at Facebook. Facebook is not the technically best platform out there. 
um, you know, for, for a company that size to have that many bugs in their software is pretty surprising. And yet they're the most successful one because they've got everything else. They got the promotion, they've got the, they've got the presence. And, um, so I think it's a lot, you know, it's not just the, can you pull the rabbit or hide the card or do whatever, but can you engage the audience? Can you give them a story? Can you give them an experience? Yeah. And, and also, you know, understanding that where you are as a performer or where you're sitting as a, um, as a business person, you know, uh, I'm always trying to fight with those two things in my brain because, uh, I know uh, for those who've, who have never seen me before, I perform in a kilt. I have a green uh, triangle on my face. That's akin to the the face paint that the Celts used to wear to describe who they were in a tribe. You hey, know. Daniel, what's the thing on your face? Exactly. God, <laughs> forever. But, but here's the thing. I, and, and I, I always like to quote Max Maven, who is an amazing mentalist who has worked for, you know, uh, since the seventies and he still works today. And he's a brilliant thinker, maybe one of those prolific creators of magic uh, alive today. Um, he, you know, he has a very unique look. You know, some would call an eccentric look himself. And uh, he says, "I'll never know the the work that I've lost because of the way I choose to look and the way I choose to perform." But I'll never know because they'll, you know, they'll never hire me. They'll never reach out to me in the first place. But I do know the work that I've gotten because of my look, mm-hmm. and I do know. I do know the times people have called me and said, you know, I've looked for all these other magicians and they all look like they're guys in a suit. You look interesting. You've got a story. You've got something I want to hear about. And that's actually what got me booked um, on, uh, you know, I just last year um, back in, in 2019, I got a uh, booked for AMC's Dispatches from Elsewhere, which is a series they did, a limited series with uh, Jason Siegel and Sally Field. And it was an amazing, very way out there series. Oh, neat. And, and they needed uh, somebody for to do a one-day shoot in Philly. In, in, uh, and they wanted a magician to do street work for a crowd in Philly was the idea. And they're, you know, doing all this setup. And... And uh, actually, it was Meadow Perry, uh, who is an amazing bubble artist, who said, well, I don't know enough magic, but you should send them for this. And I saw a lot of names floated around, some very good names in the magic world. And and the producer calls me up and said, hey, uh, the director looked over your stuff. They love your look. They love your vibe. They love everything about you. We want you for this for this shoot. And it was a one day shoot that, that, you know, I'm, I'm in there for, I don't know, what is 10 seconds. I'm on, I'm on screen, (laughs) but I got, but I, but I got film, you know, I got paid for a whole day and it was, it, it was not, I was a featured, they call it like a featured extra. So, you know, you're not, you're paid fairly well and it's an IMDB credit and, you know, Mm. it's, it's a TV credit and, and it's me, it's not me performing as some other character. Uh, with the exception of that, they didn't want me to put the triangle on. <laughs> That's the only thing they didn't. They're like, we're not going to have you on the triangle because we don't have time to explain it to people. Like you're already in a kilt and you're already, you know, you're already you. And it's already, it's good. It would take us longer to explain it. And we're like, okay, fine. Done. So, you know, it was also about me being flexible too on the character. That's still my mm-hmm. character without the triangle. Um, I, I, I've learned to, to accept. 
Um, <laughs> Who are you? Who is that man with the triangle? <laughs> what is it? Why is there a random guy? Like they, it's like, it's funny how people will accept a guy in a kilt doing magic, but like a guy with a kilt and triangle's face, I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but, that, that's a step too far. That's yeah, right. just... Well, and the funny thing is about that too, talking about my style and everything, I was able to shift one of the things that they were going to do for the, for the show. Um, so I was able to actually even change something they want to do in the shop because, you know, the idea was that Jason Siegel's character, who's the main character puts like a dollar into my hat and he picks up a card that says, you know, Matt want to learn magic is the whole concept of the scene. Mm-hmm. And they're going to put like a, a cheap top hat on the ground. And uh, I said, I, I would never wear a top hat. And they go, oh, I know, we know you wouldn't wear a top hat. We just don't have anything else to, to use. And I had my bowler hat. I have a gray bowler that I'll wear at times. And I brought it with me. And they said, can we use your bowler? Is that, can we use the bowler hat? That's great. And so they use the bowler hat. So, so, you know, it's like all of the, all of my words were my script. All of the stuff around me was my stuff. Like they, <laughs> it was all my character that they had inserted into this, this world for this major show. Like it was, but that's just because I was so defined in what my character was and in who I was that they said, yeah, let's go with it. You know? Wow. Yeah. And that, that goes to uh, something I've been, Thinking about a lot. I'm reading uh, "Start with Why" by Simon Sinek. I, I love that book. Um, I love which, that book, which I really should have read a long time ago, but uh, just finally reading it now. And it's like re- it, I'm reconceptualizing everything. The way I'm promoting Conference 21 is changing because oh, yeah. I had been very focused on the what you know, 32 speakers and networking events and blah blah. And people are like, okay, yeah, 32 speakers, 21 dollars. One number is bigger than the other. I guess it's good. I'm like, no, no. I should focus on the why. Like this conference could change your life. This conference could have could have something in it that's the one you know the one gold nugget that makes you ten thousand dollars this could be you could make the connections this could turn around you know reverse your momentum out of 2020 into the conference like that's why i put it together um but so it it sounds like a lot of you know what you're you're doing well there's you have a a solid why you're not it's not a what of like i make uh, i i talk about celtic history and have and you know shoot magic irish spitballs at people Um, it's (laughs) But like, people know, like when if someone's seen your show, they may not be able to explain what and who Daniel Greenwolf is, but they know it. They'd be like, "Oh, he's he's uh, uh yeah," but 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 you got to see him. Yeah, and and you know what's funny is that um, it, one of the reasons that made me want to uh, to do that. Because that was part of the thing, too, is that that talk by Simon Sinek, the first one that really blew up on TED, uh, How Great Leaders Inspire Action, uh, I believe came out in 2010. I might be, I think it's about 2010 or so. So, it's, so now it's, it's been out for at least 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine, uh, Jonathan Frost, had come across this talk. And it sent it to me. It was another magician who uh, had, had kind of gone into comedy, and and now I think he's gone into some other business of some sort. But but he sent me this TED talk, and I must have watched it. It's only like you know, it's like any other TED talk. It was like eighteen minutes or so, mm-hmm. and I watched it like three times in a row, and it 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 really it really shifted what I was trying to do too, because at the time. Especially we were getting into, um, you know, I had been asked to be the general manager and basically create the Midsummer Fantasy Renaissance Fair. 
I was asked by uh, Patrick Colleton, who was the owner of the Midsummer Magic Renaissance Fair, uh, and his general manager uh, was 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 getting out of it, and um, because he was just it was just stagnant. It wasn't it wasn't that that guy's cup of tea doing an outdoor Renaissance Fair, and mm-hmm. I'd worked behind the scenes on the Southern Connecticut Renaissance Fair, and uh, you know in other fairs as well. I'd worked as uh, you know behind the scenes, not just a professional act, but also as a improv director and scriptwriter and all this other stuff. And so Patrick Colleton says to me, he goes, I would like you to basically create a fair from the ground up. And I, I really had to think about that because I'm a magician. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not an event runner. I never want to be an event runner. I still don't want to be an event runner, mind you. Um, but, and I've been asked about several other Renaissance fairs over the years. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Um, but with, the Midsummer Fantasy Renaissance Fair. I said, what do I want out of this fair? Do I just want to make another Renaissance Fair? Do I just want to, you know, put something else out there or just, you know, uh, have a space for me to be able to create weird and absurd, you know, stunts that I can get paid for, which is one of the reasons I did the Renaissance Fair is so I could strap myself 30 feet in the air and hang myself by a, uh, by a cherry picker uh, while we're surrounded by fireworks, you know, like, that's stuff I was able to do because I was general manager of a Renaissance fair that would foot the bill for these publicity stunts. Um, Who's going to say, no, you're the boss. Exactly. It was kind of what it was. Uh, and Patrick Colleton has always been very, very uh, accepting of my artistic endeavors for the most part. He's always like, you know what you're doing. So go for it. But um, what happened was I asked myself, well, what did I want? And then I remembered when I first stepped into the New York Renaissance fair when I was 12 and I just felt I, I became inspired I was inspired by, by the, the energy and, and by, by the love everybody seemed to have for what they were doing there. And I didn't know about the backstage stuff. I didn't know behind the scenes stuff. I didn't know what was going on. I just saw when I walked through those gates, these people were set on, on transporting you. And that blew me away. And so the mission statement for the Midsummer Fantasy Renaissance Fair became Inspire Imagination. My why for the fair became we want to inspire the imagination and everybody who comes through the, those gates in some way. Maybe it's a kid who like gets blown away and, and wants to become a, a science fiction writer, a fantasy writer. Maybe it's somebody who wants to join a Renaissance Fair. Maybe it's somebody who just, maybe it's just somebody who wants to have a better day and they want to and they want to forget about everything outside for a little while or, or laugh and have a fun time or, or get swept up in a good story for a little while in, and inspire themselves in some way. And that that's what the Midsummer Fantasy Renaissance Fair came for me. It started with the why. Why do you know, why are we doing this fair to inspire imagination? Well, OK, how do we do that? We have we have a cast and crew of people that are just as obsessed with creating uh, this unique and beautiful world as we are. We have artists and crafters from all over the country and we have professional acts from all over the world that have been a part of this or, or have a, an energy and excitement to do this. And it creates a Renaissance fair that exists for three weekends and thousands of people get to go through the gates. So there's the golden circle concept in reverse, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the why, the how, and the what. Yeah. And, and it drove it. It did drive it, you know, and then the first year from the previous fair, that was running to the one that we started, you know, we had doubled the attendance in one year and 
every year, with the exception of of apocalypse now and and a couple of and a, and a couple of years where the rain was really bad you know we'd grown in attendance every year mm-hmm. and i and i feel that i really do attribute that success to my staff to my managers who are all on board in this family that we've created um because we all have a piece in creating this this really beautiful thing and and i think that only be, that only happened because I had this very clear why I wanted to do what I was doing and I wasn't going to back down from the why you could back down from the, from, from the how you could, you can always shift the how, right? Mm -hmm. You can always say, okay, this process is going to work better. So this is how we're going to do this process. And that's fine. Um, but, but, but the why stayed core and that is, that is really led us. I, I think that's led the Midsummer fantasy Renaissance fair to be as successful as it is. I mean, it's not humongous, um, you know, it's, it's, there's other fairs out there that are even, you know, even the Connecticut Renaissance fair is bigger than ours is, you know, they run for more weekends. They, but I, I don't always agree with, with all of their business practices. And there's a lot, of, they've got a lot of a bad reputation from some people because of some of their business practices. There's a lot of fairs that have that, you know, uh, and because of our why, and because that leads what we do, I feel like that that's made us, you know, vendors know that we're not going to screw them over, you know, mm-hmm. at professional acts, there are professional acts out there that will come to our fair and they'll wait for us to schedule our fair for them before they go and book other fairs because they love the atmosphere at our fair, mm. you know, and I've been told that by so many people and, you know, we have a large, large number of volunteers who work our fair and, and they all, you know, they, they, they do it because they love what, what the atmosphere and what we've created. And I think that only comes from, I, I think it only comes from having that why so strong and solid. Yeah. And, and I know one of the things that, uh, one thing I was impressed by, which is, I guess, probably in the what, but I'm sure the why comes from it, is the the level of theater that was presented. Because a lot of fairs that I've gone to, it's, it's you know, some some kind of contrived musical Robin Hood or something. And, it, you know, Robin Hood or, uh, 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 I don't know. Um, you know, one of those, the classic tropes, um, and yeah, the, the princess and the whatever, whereas with, with your fair, there's a, an actual, like there's a three and a half hour play split into seven half hour stage segments with a storyline and betrayals. And, and I remember the, the first time, uh, I can't remember which year it was, but w- when I watched a character killed on stage <laughs> and I'd like. Oh wow! This you're not you're not messing around here. Like this is actual drama happening, um, right right here on the stage. Whereas I, I was so used to this almost Disneyfied sort of entertainment where it's you know fun for the whole family but kind of boring for the parents. Um, whereas you know yours is the kind of fair that an adult can get into, a kid can get into. Um, it really was an immersive environment because you're kind of building. It almost felt more more LARPish than Disneyish. And I think that's something that we always tried to make happen. And it was, uh, because I, listen, I, and I love, there's nothing I, I, I certainly love a good, happy story. And I, and, and I love, obviously comedy is such a big part of what I do with my own work that to, uh, to, to give people the other side of that coin, which I can't with some exceptions, you know, and I can do that with my own work. You know, when I do uh, when I do our, our stage show, Celtic Magic, you know, I talk about the great hunger. You know, uh, people come over to America from Ireland and, and the fact that, you know, 
2 million people immigrated over to this country uh, because a million died during the potato famine, you know, and, and, and all the corruption and the pain and the suffering. And, and, and I do, I talk about racial issues. I talk about the fact that when the Irish came over to America, you know, they were treated horribly and we still haven't learned our lesson, it seems in so many ways, Mm -hmm. um, because then, you know, but I also call that out in my show. And, and I think that if, if I was just focused on let's be as funny as possible or let's I want to be a funny magician or I want to be a, um, I just want to be entertaining, then I think I couldn't get away with doing that sincerely. And our our fair is the same way. I feel like that if we were. You know, we we do accept there's a certain level of because we're a fantasy renaissance fair, you know, we allow ourselves a lot more leeway with uh, the characters. So we don't have to worry about being historically accurate as other fairs do. Uh, mm-hmm. We have, you know, we have elves and dwarves and orcs and 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 all these different characters, animal can and and, and actually a whole world we've created. We've created a world specifically for the Midsummer Fantasy Renaissance Fair, which has had. You know, uh, you know, I wrote the world for the first three years. I was the writer of the script, and then I passed it off to uh, Anthony Myron, uh, who's written the script now for the last seven years. Mm-hmm. And uh, from that, from the world we've created, we've had people who've created a, a series. Keith Fermanti uh, had created a series called Wardens, based on the world that we created from the Renaissance Fair. You know. Um, and, 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 and that's because, you know, we, we, I think it was partly because we have that sincerity and, and because we, we understand, and I say we, because I think my whole team, my management team, you know, uh, definitely feels this is that we know that there's a, uh, there's, there's, a, there's, there's levels to everything mm-hmm. and to just say you're one thing is, is it comes off as schlocky. It comes off as insincere and it comes off as, as, as two dimensional at best, you know? So I think that by not doing that, we've, we've given ourselves some more, we've given ourselves some more creative freedom as well to be able to go and explore those themes, which are darker and to, 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 to play with that and still remain family safe. You know, we're still, we're not doing any, there's, there's, there's no hard R or even hard PG 13 with our show, except for the pub. That's a different story. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but I, but I think that might be the only, that might be the only, like the biggest rule is that, you know, we, we have to keep it to a certain level, but we try not to, again, don't, don't dumb down the audience's intelligence. Mm-hmm. Don't, you mm-hmm. know, don't pretend. And that's the thing with magic too. Penn and Teller talk about that all the time is that they decided early on that the audience they're performing for is probably smarter than they are. So don't insult their intelligence. Mm-hmm which is something I've tried to do with my own work too. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I, yeah, I think it's, it's part of why some, some fairs I see in their shows kind of rubbing the wrong way. Cause they're so, um, you know, trite and at the end of it, it's a happy ending and everyone's singing together and oh, everything's fine. Um, and I think especially, you know, in the last few years, um, I don't know, the last 40 years that, 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 uh, we've been in crisis, yeah. Uh, you know, to, to walk out of that and then come into like, Oh, there's bad guys, but they're fine. Now we're singing together because the day's over. Like that just doesn't doesn't feel right. Um, you know, you need some way that ties it together. No, it could be you, you made a treaty, uh, or it could be the bad guy was motivated by something, and you've addressed their need, and now they don't want to be a bad guy anymore. Um, 
or something. But but also, I think oftentimes they dumb things down for kids because they think kids are stupid, mm-hmm. and kids aren't stupid. Um, they may not be able to express the same critical thinking concepts. Of course, these days a lot of adults can't express critical thinking concepts very well either. Um, but you know, like when I uh, as as we are recording this, it is uh, January seventh, and so yesterday was January sixth for anyone who was awake that day. Um, yeah. And I explained to my daughter what was happening as it was happening. Um, and I explained it's a big deal. And then I clarified that it does not affect us directly. We are not in immediate danger ourselves. Uh, our home is not in danger. Our work is not in danger, but this is a big deal. And here's why. Um, and while I don't think she could have gone into the the political theory of what was happening and all the rest, she at least understood that something important was happening and that, um, you know, the, the, the broad, the broad strokes of it. So, you know, even with a six-year-old, you can go into a surprising amount of detail and you'll be amazed what they echo back. And you're like, how did you, you, you synthesize that together on your own? Um, and, oh, and again, talking to adults, sometimes they don't synthesize some of these oh, details. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously as the fact is that we're talking about January 6th, some adults don't understand facts or science or numbers. <laughs> um, but that's, that's well, maybe we'll leave it there. Uh, but, <laughs> but I, I think I, you know, and I, we did this with our kids. So I'm, you know, uh, my husband, wife, and I, uh, we have uh, two daughters who are nine and 10 and uh, they're currently distance between distance learning. They're hybrid learning. You know, uh, we're, we're living in Connecticut. So some, some cities are hybrid learning. Some are just full distance learning. Mm-hmm. And as of, as of January 7th, and, uh, and, yeah, and by, you know, by the time you're listening to this, you're probably, you know, living out in a, uh, <laughs> uh under a tarp, I'm not yeah. sure how you're listening to you it. Probably, but... You probably had to scramble together and probably beat up somebody for their windows zoom to download this podcast at this point, <laughs> just so it's the only technology left. Yeah, you know. So, uh, this things last forever somehow. Exactly. Those are the one things. Um, but yeah, it, it was a, to be able to tell them, you know, we've, we've always tried to treat them with a level of intelligence, uh, but, but while still understanding, you know, I've spent a long time teaching kids, uh, aside from being a magician, uh, I'm uh, in a owning a Renaissance fair. I, I am also a third degree black belt instructor in Tang Soo Do, which is a Korean martial art that is the older cousin of Taekwondo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've taught a lot of kids over the years, you know, over the last uh, decade or so of me getting back into Tang Soo Do. Um, cause I took about a 14 year break, which is a whole nother story. But, but when I got back into it, uh, I started teaching fairly soon after, you know, I, I left when I was a first degree black belt and I came back and then, you know, got my second degree, got my third degree. And something I learned about with kids is that they are astonishingly perceptive and they are very good at sensing, um, in, you know, coming back to insincerity and sincerity, you know, uh, they're very good at sensing sincerity. Uh, mm-hmm. and even if they aren't good in sensing it with maybe people of their own age group, something will rub a kid the wrong way, uh, about an adult who talks down to them, especially after a certain age. And, and I learned that pretty early on. And then with my own kids, um, you know, we, we realize like little, even things like, uh, like language, you know, I, I, you wouldn't know by this podcast, I'm being nice, but generally I swear like a sailor when I'm, <laughs> when I'm in my own house. And, um, 
and and my my partners with you know the we all you know we all swear it's it's a very comfortable part of our vocabulary and we explained to the kids early on we said so here's the deal you want to swear you have every right to swear um you don't swear at anybody you can't swear in school and you can't swear in front of your grandparents because they don't want you to do that that's unacceptable on their terms and so you have to follow their protocols but if you can swear acceptably you know mm-hmm. um and you can you can swear in a way that is not caustic towards somebody then you know what you're allowed to swear and we told them that from about age 6 on and they just it wasn't until this year which let's be fair 2020 is a year that can make anybody start to pick up swearing again <laughs> um but it wasn't but it wasn't until this year they even had any interest in adding language like that to the vocabulary but but they've got this but but they they've had 4 years of understanding the rules of how this vocabulary can be used and you can still be intelligent and you can still be well spoken and uh, an f bomb isn't going to change that at all mm-hmm. you know it's just how you use it can you make a coherent argument before you've you've gone to profanity um and sometimes when you whack your toe on a uh, on an ottoman uh at at high speed there is no there is no uh good language for it except for a good well placed profane outburst you know and um, and there's a study on that 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 shows that swearing when you hurt yourself reduces the pain in some way exactly so mm-hmm. so uh to exalt in such ways yes. um uh you know i i so so they understood that and and i mean they're they're 9 and 10 almost 10 and 11 now uh, so who knows? We'll see how it goes later on. But mm-hmm. but they they do have a respect for that on that level. And I feel like, I guess I guess my overall message with with everything I've tried to do is is, no matter how out there I am, no matter how weird I am, you know, um, I try to be sincere, and mm-hmm. I try to get that across with, with my kids and I get try to get that with my work. And I'm somebody who lies for a living. My job <laughs> is to get in front of an audience and tell them a story about something that's happening. That's not happening. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how are you sincere with that? Well, the element that is sincere is everything around the insincerity. So if, if the, the lie is I'm putting something into my hand when I'm not, you know, when it's not supposed to be, you know, palming a card or, or, or doing a move and, and putting a, an object into the other hand or something, you know, that's the lie. The truth is <clears throat> the performance that I'm giving, the story that I'm telling or the history that I'm giving, um, that's where the sincerity matters. And at the end of the day, also telling the audience, look, I'm going to tell you some stories. And, and we're going to go on an adventure together and, uh, I'm going to do some stuff. You're some of you might think I'm the devil. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm a ginger, but I'm not the devil. Um, it seems very close to each other, but it's not. <laughs> and so we go from there and, and the audience is now in agreement. So it comes back to that swearing, you know, it's like, it, you know, now you understand the rules of the game. And so now we can proceed from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, you know, it's definitely that that kind of. I've heard people talk about the idea of consent as a broader concept than just 
uh, you know, sexual consent, but consent of consent for conversation, consent for um, to sell to someone, consent to lie to them in your in this case. You, know, oh, the, oh. You, you have their consent and expectation. They're like, we expect you're going to lie to us, mm-hmm. and then we expect to enjoy it. That is, that is our, our covenant. Absolutely. And on top of which, you know, consent is another great one because that comes in so many forms uh, in terms of, especially when you're on a stage. Um, and, and and now our the levels of consent have now changed so drastically. We don't even know where they are anymore because of everything that happened in 2020 in terms mm-hmm. of in terms of stage consent. So normally, um, you know, uh, if somebody comes up on stage with you to a certain level, if you respect your audience member, they will go along with you for most things. Um, as you mentioned, I used to do an effect in my show called magic Irish spit. Um, and I say used to, because I honestly don't know if I'm comfortable even doing that piece in my show anymore. I, you know, I make jokes Not I don't, I don't spit in my audience member's mouth or anything. I never did anything like that, but just the concept of bringing that up, do I feel comfortable as a performer being so, uh, cavalier? with something like spit and saliva. Mm. Like, is that a thing? You know, and that's a lot of, that's something that a lot of us performers have to think about, even playing cards, you know, giving somebody a deck of cards to handle and shuffle is now uh, for, for right now is almost unheard of. Like there's some people you can't even, you know, you don't perform live for, but on top of which will people feel comfortable doing that in the future? Mm -hmm. We don't know. And so you have to be, you have to be willing to, dance with that line of consent and always be willing to agree. Like, you know, enthusiastic consent is what we need always in every aspect, not just, you know, mm-hmm. not just uh, in, in the uh, sexual aspect, but also in, in, in any other aspect of our lives, we need enthusiastic continual consent. And I learned about this many years ago. I was performing at the Hudson Valley Mayfair, in New Paltz, New York. This is going back. My goodness. I don't know, 12 years, 13 years. And I was performing and I do this thing where I bring people up on stage and I bring two people up on stage to start the show with me. And people are clapping and people is everyone, I'm everyone clap along to the beat. Right. And I get to this one person and I bring them up on stage. All right, great. And I looked at this other woman and I said, here, come on up on stage and help me. And what I used to do is something that a lot of magicians still do is I would try to get them on stage. I'd be like, come on, come on, get up here. Go ahead. Come on up. And it would always, you know, in, in the guise of being playful, because a lot of people don't want to come on stage. And, and so you don't want to start a, a rolling ball of people saying, no, 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 is, was the, the school thought. And so I, I put my hand on this woman's shoulder to be like, come on, it'll be fine. And she looks me dead in the eyes in the middle of everybody clapping and, and you know, like clapping along. She looks at me. She says, don't touch me with a coldness that, that I immediately knew I had done something wrong. I had crossed a line. Now this is putting a hand on somebody's shoulder lightly. And so her, her, the per- person she was with, uh, which I later found out would be her, her boyfriend uh, said, I'll come up on stage immediately seeing the situation and he wanted to diffuse it. And I said, okay, great. Come on up on stage. And I didn't draw attention to it. I didn't, I didn't want to be a, a, a douchebag about it, if mm-hmm. you will. And I just went through the routine with the two people I had on stage. And then after the show, I came over and I apologized profusely to her and she apologized to me. 
because of how she reacted in that moment. What she had done was reacted to a violation of her consent that she was not expecting such a reaction to. She did not expect herself to react the way she did. Mm -hmm. And I did not expect her to react in that way. But that moment changed me in terms of how I interact with my audience. Because I'm really good at reading people on stage. I mean, I've got a good 95% hit rate on how someone's going to react when I bring them up on stage. I watch people during my show. I try to figure out who's going to be comfortable. At one point, I, you know, I, I would sit in somebody's lap and eat fire. You know, I always picked a guy who looks like he's having a good time, a fun guy. I'd sit in his lap and eat fire as part of the gag of the show. That is so difficult to do because you have to know that person wants to play along. Um, and in that woman's case, because of whatever she had gone through, whatever she experienced, um, I just put my hand on her shoulder and she felt a, a violation of consent that was minor in hindsight. And she even said it was minor. And, and she said, no, no, it's, you know, I'm sorry for responding that way. We both apologized to each other and everything was good. Um, she also appreciated that I didn't try to burn her house down for it, you know, cause some, <laughs> some performers do that. Some performers don't get the response they want from the audience and they blame the audience. And, and you can't, you know, you, it's your fault. No matter what happens on stage, the guy whose name is on the bill, it's your fault. It's like the salesman who blames the customer for not buying. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and and no matter what happened to her in her life, no matter what's going on in her life, I should not, I, you know, I, I learned that day. And thank God that this was, you know, whatever it was, 15 years ago. You know, I learned that day with a minor example that um, consent at all times has to be enthusiastic uh, in a stage sense and off stage as well. But I knew that before on stage, it also has to be enthusiastic because you can't, you, 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 you shouldn't expect that to be the day you're going to push somebody's comfort zone over the edge. And, and I feel like that happens far too often in business. It happens far too often in, in, you know, in, in performance where people, they, they're trying to push their own agenda they're trying to push their own comfort zones without considering other people's comfort zones, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I encountered that a lot in the as I've gotten into coaching. Um, mm -hmm. I found a lot of these these coaches they have they think that I should have very ambitious goals, um, and it's almost that same thing about like the come on come up on stage it'll be fun. I'm like, of course you want to make seven figures. Of course you're focused on money entirely, and that's your primary goal. And uh, I, I had one coach tell me that if my if I wasn't aiming to make at least twenty thousand dollars a month, then I should leave the business um, because I would burn out without that much money. As if money was the only thing that would keep me focused and and interested in helping people. Um, and and I, I kind of subconsciously, when I started doing my my uh, daily motivational messages, stayed away from that. I, I didn't want to be like, you can be great, you can be anything you want, because you know you can't be anything you want. You can be anything you work towards and are capable of doing. Um, but, you know, so, so, so I always emphasize when I say, like, you have greatness within you. And then I say, and your greatness may be being a great parent or being a great coworker or being a really funny person or being a great cook, that not everyone's going to be a celebrity or famous basketball player or whatever. And I think you get a lot of that. The Because the 
Oh, and of, and of course, these coaches who are trying to sell their $5,000, $10,000 package mm-hmm. need you to believe you can make a million dollars because then $5,000 makes sense because the numbers work. Exactly. And that person who's like, no, you know, I, I need to make like 6000 bucks a month and I'll be pretty happy. Well, you're not going to take, you're not going to hire a $5,000, $10,000 coach to get to $6,000 a month. And so your lack of interest offends their sensibilities and their business. And so they're like, what, what's wrong with you? How, how do you, are, are you even a coach if you don't want to make $50,000 a month? Yeah. And, and, and I think, again, you're right. It, it comes down to, and, and I, and I have to, for myself as a magician, I always have to consider what are my own personal goals? Cause I'm terrible at setting. And I have a, I have a therapist because that's, you really need one. Everybody should have a therapist. Um, I actually have two. Uh, I have a therapist and I have a couples therapist. Um, so, but, but that's a whole nother, again, ball of wax. But, uh, but with my therapist, you know, he always says to me, he goes, you set these unrealistic timelines for goals that no one expects you to reach in these times for no reason. You know, um, you know, I used to be 355 pounds and you knew me back when I was 355 pounds and, and, uh, you know, in 2010 now, uh, mm-hmm. I started losing weight and I went from 355 pounds to now I'm currently sitting at about 207, 208. Generally, it depends on the day right now. <laughs> and and I was at 198 um, about a month, about two months ago, but it's been, you know, it's been a hard couple of months and that's what happens. It's just, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to accept that in myself, but, and accepting that your goals don't have a deadline. Um, you know, there's a phrase that I used to, to, to hear, which was, uh, goals are, you know, this is something that Je- Jeff McBride, uh, even said, which is a good phrase, which is goals are dreams with a deadline. Mm-hmm. Which I do dig, I do dig the concept of deadlines, but I don't dig the idea of living or dying by them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, you know, if you set a, if you set uh something has to happen, and you've got, you know, if it's setting like a minor thing, like, uh, you know, we're going to do this conference and it's going to go off this at this time, then yeah, you reach that goal. You do that. But, but yeah, yeah. We need to hit our conference 21 goals in February. If we had them in March, it's not going to do much for us. Exactly. Exactly. But, but yeah, um, well, the, you know, you're right. The weight loss goal or something, it doesn't yeah. have to happen. Weight loss goals, professional goals. You're, you know, you're, there's no, there, there, uh, you know, uh, there's a great, there's a great, uh, a conversation, a, a dialogue in uh, the movie Parenthood, uh, which is a movie with uh, Steve Martin and folks like that. And uh, basically, it's I think it's Steve Martin's dad uh, who says, uh, you, "You don't spike the football. There's no there's no big ticker tape when you cross the finish line at the end. There's no finish line in life. You mm-hmm. just keep moving. You just keep going. And and that's something that really that really stuck with me too. That idea of like, I'm I'm not gonna suddenly get the spot on America's Got Talent and then, hey, I'm suddenly famous. Or I'm not going to get the spot on, on Penn & Teller's Foolish and, hey, I'm suddenly famous. Or I'm not going to finally get that stage show in Vegas and be like, hey, I'm suddenly famous and, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy and financially successful and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. No, it's always, you're always pushing for the next thing and you're always going somewhere. And, and if you don't take time to realize that, and then to take a step back and breathe and say, all right, I can, I can take this success for that moment. I can take this moment of pride that I've reached this goal and then 
when I feel that feeling of, I thought this was going to feel different because it always feels different, right? Mm-hmm. It always feels different. I was, you know, I did a video a while back um, for this, we, you know, we did this video that got 35 million views on Facebook. It was an advocacy video and it got 35 million views. And I thought in my head, well, this, this is going to be the thing that breaks me. You know, this is the thing that brings me where I want to go. And I did, I had, I got, I, I, I spoke to TV producers about stuff and we were talking about things. Nothing came of any of it, you know, except for one Buzzfeed live interview, which was a great, I loved it. It was so much fun. I loved doing it, you know? And I got a lot of press during that time when that came out and, and, but that was it. That was it. Nothing, nothing else came of it. And I realized that it wasn't, I, I don't know if what I was looking for in terms of being like, this is the big break. No, none of that is it. It was just, you, you had a, I had a minor success and it was great and it was, it was weird. Um, and then I just moved forward because it never feels like it should. You know, when you see a hundred thousand dollars in your account, which somebody's got to tell me what that's like one day, that'd be great. But, uh, <laughs> but when you see a hundred thousand dollars in your account, you never go, yeah, I've made it. It never feels like that. And, and it's okay. It's okay not to feel that way. It's okay to feel like, uh, you know, everybody expects it to be the aha moment. It never is. It's just, you, it, and, it, I, and I hope it doesn't sound pessimistic to people out there. I, I, hopefully it sounds more optimistic because it's okay that you feel that way. And it's okay to, to always want to go on to do the next thing. Just make sure to take a breath first, be like, okay, this happened and I'm, I'm happy that it happened and I'm excited it happened. And now, um, things don't stop. I'm just gonna, I just, I can keep going. Well, I, I think for a lot of people too, they expect that like, like when we bought our house, yeah. which, you know, fantastic house, great. I think part of the reason I'm not fully feeling it is that what's great about it is we can entertain here. Lots of parking, lots of space and, uh, ha ha, great year to get it. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Our, our, our house party was incredible. Uh, or at least it will be whenever we have it. Exactly. But, but to some degree, there's like, we moved in, we signed the paperwork and we're like, okay, now what? You own a house. All right. Uh, I don't feel different. I yeah. don't feel like a homeowner. I'm just feel like me in a house. I, I thought this would be a bigger deal. I've been working <laughs> for it for a long time. Um, and, and then of course, part of my thought is like, great, I've got a house now I have to pay for it. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, but, and I, I think for a lot of people, they that that can lead to depression because they're like, I've been working for this for years, and I don't feel any better. What's the point? Yeah, and that's the thing is that you you if if you don't realize that the thing you're working towards is not going to be, you know. And I, I was actually just talking about Simon Sinek. There, uh, Simon Sinek was doing an interview on his uh, uh, optimism, a bit of optimism podcast with uh, Darren Brown who is one of the most amazing magicians working today. He's a, a prolific performer uh, again, uh, and he has created some amazing stuff. He's astonishingly humble, and, but such a brilliant performer. And, and he's huge in England and he is coming over here and he did a great Broadway run before the pandemic hit. And, uh, and he's got stuff on Netflix. Now I, I really, Darren Brown's pretty amazing. And they were talking about, he'd put out a book called happiness and, uh, and, and the concept of happiness is not 
a noun. Happy is not a noun. Happy should be a verb always. Um, to happy, you know, <laughs> you, which which is funny, but 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 like the thing is, is that like, it should always be a verb, and it has uh, is that you're always kind of you're you're not always you're not trying to reach this thing, and like this car is not going to be happiness. This you know nothing can be happiness. You're only just trying to 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 happy. You're always trying to happy. And some days you're good at happying and some days you're not good at happying, you know? Mm -hmm. And I love that concept that every day you can do that a little more and, and realize that that end goal might be a brief spot of, of that happy, you know, of, 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 of you're making the, you know, doing the happy as it were. It sounds so wrong, mm -hmm. but like, you know, <laughs> but like you're, that's, you're a doing that. that's a different habit. That's right. It's totally different. Um, uh, Got to sign on to his OnlyFans for that. Uh, no, but, <laughs> but 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 to but doing that as a verb, it it tells me that it's a constant state and it's always shifting and it's always something that that you're that you're that you do in different ways and there's no one definition of it um, as a, as a noun as a hard thing. And I think that if I think if we realize that more often uh, as a society, maybe then maybe we'll be more likely to well, maybe we'll be less prone towards depression, taking up as much of us as, as we can. I mean that, and also finding a really a, a good therapist. I, I think that helps a lot too. And, and fixing the, the underlying um, structural problems in the economy, which is creating oh, yeah. a massive uh, struggling class, but that, yeah, that's yeah, exactly. Exactly. But we, <laughs> but we digress. Uh, yeah. Although, although I, I think a lot of you know, the younger generation is discovering happiness in things that don't cost money. Um, yeah. Whether it is, you know, joining a rent fair community or, um, uh, you know, crafting and a lot of people, more people are getting into art and creating their own things and, mm -hmm. and kind of bucking the commercial trend because they're like, I'm not going to get excited about a BMW because I'm never going to own one. So yeah, your, your car is stupid because I can't afford it anyway. And oh, wait, it is actually stupid. I, I for a brief time, I sold Audis. Um, well, I didn't sell Audis. I sat in an Audi dealership with a desk um, <laughs> and end up moving over to Volkswagen and Volkswagen I could sell. Because I'm like, okay, I get the point of this car. I, I see the value proposition. I see why it's reasonably priced and why and the appeal. The Audis, I'm like, this is a Volkswagen that costs twice as much. You know, that this A6 costs seventy two thousand dollars. The Passat costs thirty one. Why? It, it's two Passats. I could buy two. I can't think of anything the A6 can have that would make it better than two Passats. Um, <laughs> and so once I got to Volkswagen, I could sell them because I got it. it, it like I, I, as someone's joked in the Audi, each of the rings is five thousand dollars. <laughs> it's five thousand dollars a ring. Um, and, you know, when you look at that, we're like, hey, yeah, the cars are the price if you look at it that way. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, then, then it's really it's a deal. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can knock off a ring for you, but you're gonna lose something. Just saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So it, and I think the generation starting to see, you know see through that marketing. Um, I think so too. I think I, there's always going to be a class of people that look at luxury as the end goal and, uh, and think that luxury is in material items. And, and listen, I am no different, uh, in the sense of like the things that I want are things that will make my show bigger and better and prettier that can get out to more people, make my virtual show shinier, you know, whether it's better lighting, better technology, better camera, whatever. I'm always looking to make this better, whatever it is I'm doing. Uh, but it's towards a goal. 
of making the, the goal of making the show better, not the best show, not a great, just better than it was yesterday. And I think that that's, and that's the same thing with our Renaissance fair, you know, and the same thing with anything that I've tried to do is I just want to be a little better than I was yesterday. And if I don't do it today, I'm going to do it tomorrow. And I think that that's something that, that that's really good to keep in mind. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, that's my, uh, that's what Kiyoshi says in our, our, uh, the dojo, especially with the kids class. He says, you should try to be better. You should learn one thing in every class. If you learn one thing in every class or get better in one thing in every class, you're on your way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we are coming up on an hour. Uh, hey. cause as I, as the listener probably heard in the promo, if I remember to put it in there, I'm shifting the format to make this longer. Um, cause if you want to listen to me and my guests, then you probably want more of it. And if this length is a problem for you, well, you probably didn't want to listen to me and my get and or my guest anyway. Um, but I think an hour is good. Um, so, so, so before I let you go, um, which will actually put us a little bit over an hour, uh, what are you going to be talking about at conference 21? Um, at conference 21. Well, you just basically heard it. So <laughs> no, yeah, no, I was kidding. That wasn't uh, talk. That's it. That wasn't talk. That was it. I just did it all. Um, but no, uh, I believe the, uh, the phrasing that we, uh, uh, that we used for the particular, cause we've got, it, it, I was really excited. You, you contacted me about this and, and we went back and forth as to what we're going to end up talking about. And what I really, and I think I, I want to use the, uh, the exact, the title of it because I really, I, I was very proud of the stupidity of this title. Um, uh, but I believe now I've got to look it up for myself. It, it's don't follow your passion and optimistic chat about the future. <laughs> yes. Um, I am. So, so, if basically the the thing that I would say with what I'm going to be talking about is that uh, I you know I, I talk a little bit I kind of talked a little bit about some of it about about passion and flexibility and obsession but you know uh, Mike Rowe uh, of Dirty Jobs talked a lot about don't follow your passion uh, he had a whole talk about like don't follow your passion find something that works and go with it you know he has a it's a great TED talk by the way you can, mm-hmm. you can find somewhere. Um, my thing is, is actually, is that I, I don't believe in following my passion, but I will let my passion drive me. Uh, and, and my passion, kind of talking about Simon Sinek's why, uh, comes into the idea of, I want to, I want to be driven by this thing that I want to create or this thing that I want to become. I want that to drive me, but I'm not going to let it dictate where I go. If I let my passion dictated where I went, um, I would not have started a Renaissance fair. I would not have, um, I, I definitely would not have, uh, gone out and done, uh, you know, trying to go for this thing on, on AMC doing dispatches from elsewhere. I would not have become an advocate for ethical non-monogamy, uh, and, 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 uh, for queer rights. You know, I, I would not have done these things if I followed my passion, but if the passion is there kind of in the passenger seat, you know, uh, helping me, then, then I was, I'm able to use that to, to, to help push me in the right direction. And, and so, um, you know, that, that's kind of what we're going to end up talking about, uh, for that and how I did that and how I do that, uh, for this talk and, and how I can, how you can use this in other things, not just, not just being a magician, but how you can use it in, in any business that you're trying to create or, or build up or whatever it is. But if you are trying to be a magician, you should definitely come to Conference 21. Exactly. If for some reason you want to be a magician, you can definitely come to Conference 21 and find me. I'll be there. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> uh, and of course, the tickets are available at converse21.com. And if people want to get in touch with you and see your virtual shows or someday see your in-person shows, uh, how will they find you? Uh, well, they can find me. Um, I, I'm doing virtual shows monthly. They call it Celtic Magic Virtually Live. And you can find tickets for that by going to CelticMagicShow.com slash virtually live. And you can find me. I'm at Daniel Greenwolf on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube, on Facebook, um, I, I, on LinkedIn. Uh, I am I am at Daniel Greenwolf pretty much everywhere because that's that's how you do it. You see? <laughs> the best branding you can have is your own name. So that's what yes. I'm using. Very good. And, and of course, the key thing is to pick a name that other people don't have. Yeah, that helps a little bit. Damn you, British Michael Whitehouses. I'm. You've got. A, you've got some. You've got some stiff. And all the people that want to be you. It seems well, yeah, that. Yeah, that, that's a whole different thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'm. I am the second most popular Michael Whitehouse on Amazon as an author. <laughs> there you go. I mean, like, I, I don't expect to be that high up, but but like, I I'm the bottom of my own name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the other one's like actually a pretty good horror writer, apparently. Ah, and I have one go. book. Um. Hey, you're but, still one uh, of two. Hey, that makes you second best. That's still pretty good. You're on a list. I'm in the 50th percentile right there. <laughs> well, it has been fantastic to have you on the show. And uh, oh, and do you have a podcast, which you probably share? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do have the Green Wolf podcast, uh, which you can find out by going to you can find me by going to greenwolfcast.libson.com. Um, that's, uh, L I B S Y N.com. Uh, so greenwolf, greenwolfcast.libson.com. And, uh, you can also find it by, if you go in my social media stuff, you can find the green wolf podcast on Facebook. Uh, you can find all that stuff there. And yeah, we've, we interview, uh, magicians and, and jugglers and other entertainers. Uh, it ends up being, uh, a catch all of, of strange creatures like myself. Uh, but what I like to tell people because because I was trying to because I used to have the Gingerosity podcast. I like to tell people is that the the Green Wolf podcast is the our tagline is a Celtic ginger pagan polyamorous pansexual stage magician's weekly attempt to make sense of life and performing with help from his friends, <laughs> and that's that's where we go for it. So and, and I can tell you do that with no practice. Exactly, none at all, none at all. <laughs> I'm sure you got that in the first try. Exactly, nailed right. it every time. I, and is is part of that podcast is is at fault for the the shift in my format to going to a longer format. Well, hopefully, hopefully people enjoy. I'm sure they will. I enjoyed doing this, and uh, and I hate hearing myself talk. So hopefully, folks out there enjoy it to some extent. Yeah, it might only be seven people, but those seven people are going to love it. And if they're hearing this part of it, then they must have loved it because they're still listening. You made it! Congratulations! All right, now we're going to get into the secret of life since all those other suckers tapped <laughs> out. Here's the secret to making a million dollars. All right, <laughs> and that's all the time we have. Oh, sorry, we're out. Oh, uh, maybe next uh, time. Yeah, yeah, I have to bring you back on the show. Well, great great to talk to you, as always. Very excited to uh, have you at Conference 21 on February 20th and 21st. And um, stay safe and, you know, keep your machete close in case of random, random zob, zobs of mombies. Oh, yeah, I'm looking for random zobs of mombies myself. I'll be yeah, yeah, we, yeah, words don't even mean the same thing by the time. I know, I know, but at this time, I mean, by the time February rolls around, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, that's the that's 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 thing now. Like, media's got to be live. Otherwise, it's just, it's irrelevant. <laughs> All right, well, great having you on the show. Thanks, man. Wasn't that an incredible interview? Yes, I know, a bit longer than normal, but I think that's what made it great. I'm going to, in the next uh, season, I don't know if I'm actually going to declare a, a new season after Conference 21, or doesn't really matter. But in the next set of 
uh, podcast, next set of interviews, I'm going to let them run longer, 30 to 60 minutes. Because I, I think even with people I haven't known for 10, 12, 14 years, what I'm going to find is the conversation you just, just get deeper when you're not trying to rush to, okay, okay, when's the break? When's this? You know, he knows I didn't have a break in there. Just didn't, there wasn't a time when I thought I wanted to call a break. So we just kept going and let it roll. Um, there are, of course, some things I want to let you know about, which is usually what the break is for. So I'm going to do that right now. Uh, I'm still doing the daily motivation motivation.guyonosaguy.com or morning motivation if you can find that on podcast platforms it's uh, definitely on google podcasts and apple podcasts uh, if you search for it you may be able to find it their algorithms are a little funky for searching for a podcast that doesn't have a million downloads but uh, you can can try to search for that or go to motivation.guyonosaguy.com sign up with your email address and you will get an email in your email box every morning with the next episode. It's a great way to wake up, great way to get fired up. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. I'm getting a lot of good feedback on it. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I listen to it myself because um, it's, it's not just me. It's about the music. It's about the whole thing together really kind of getting you fired up. And, and I really try to get away from the like, rah, rah, you can be a millionaire, you can be president, you can be an astronaut, and really just focus on your own greatness. Everyone has their own greatness, whatever it is. For some people, it is big things that'll make the news and put them in the history books. But for most of us, it's not. Most of us won't make the history books. And that's okay. We can still be great in our own way. We can be part of making a better world in our small way. And that that's exciting too. And this is to some degree motivation for the rest of us. But if your greatness is to be the CEO of multinational corporation, you might be excited about this as well. And it might help you also. So it's motivation.guywhoknowsaguy.com. Dot com. So uh, be sure to sign up for that. Of course, Conference 21 coming up very soon, February 20th and 21st, with a networking event on the 19th. It's basically a three-day event. So networking on the 19th, and then speakers and more networking on the 20th, 21st. We even have a virtual wine tasting on uh, on the Saturday. Although, by the time you're listening to this, I don't know if you'll have time to get the wine. But you can always attend the wine tasting and just hang out with people and, and have some fun. It's We're really trying to recapture the... Uh, or capture the in-person, in-person conference experience, and but without the in-person conference cost, again, twenty-one bucks. What you can spend on lunch, so what you can spend on breakfast at most of these in-person events. You know, twenty-one dollars might be what a coffee costs at the Javits Center. Um, whereas, you know, for twenty-one bucks, and uh, you're you're getting food out of your own kitchen, so saves a lot of money that way. We got uh, dozens of great speakers. Going to be an awesome event. Conference21.com. If you don't have your tickets yet, and if you don't, why not? Well, maybe this is the first podcast you listen to. I don't know. But it's not too late. Conference21.com. Sign up for your uh, tickets. Actually, it'll say sign up for your membership because it's more than just a conference where you get a ticket. It really is a community that you get to be a part of on an ongoing basis. And I'm excited to be making that happen. So I hope uh, you enjoy that as well. So that, that's all I've got for you. I know this has run a little bit long, so I'm not going to talk as much as I usually do because I'm going to be talking plenty at Conference 21 where you're going to see me, you're going to see Daniel, you're going to see all the guests that I've been interviewing over the last few months. This is very exciting. Can't wait to see you on the 20th and 21st. So much, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you are listening on iTunes or any of those places, you can rate and review and share and everything else. Please do so. It is extremely important for podcasts that they be rated and reviewed because otherwise, iTunes thinks you don't care and you don't like it and doesn't show it to anyone. So please do uh, that as well as the Motivation Podcast. If you listen to that one, uh, I encourage you to do that as well. So thank you so much for listening. And here's some recorded credits.
This is the Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast with Michael Whitehouse. Segment introductions by Rowan Whitehouse. Our theme song is composed by Patrick Howard of Four Unicorns Design. Other music was Bits and Bites by Klaus Appel and Summer Ambient Piano by Raphael Crook of filmmusic.io. Find us on the web at www.guywhoknowsaguy.com. Questions can be submitted in written form or as an audio file to michael at guywhoknowsaguy.com. If you've enjoyed this show, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. You can also follow The Guy Who Knows a Guy on Facebook at facebook.com slash the guy who knows a guy. If you know someone who may enjoy this episode or the podcast as a whole, we welcome you to share our links with them. Thanks. I'll see you next week. JV Connect is coming up quick, December 12th and 13th. If you are looking for a networking event where you can meet people who aren't looking to just pitch you or take, but actually want to collaborate, build strategic partnerships, joint ventures, maybe even find some mentors, some coaches, people to support you, accountability partners, who knows? If you're looking for good people in an environment that's not stressful, but is set up to give you a lot of great connections in an efficient amount of time, check out JV Connect. JV-Connect.com. That's JV dash connect.com December 12th and 13th, 2023. We'll see you there.